fall, I had a remarkable, just a delightful conversation with one of our members that most of you probably not had a chance to get to know. And as we had that conversation, it seemed best that you might be able to eavesdrop on a similar conversation. So in the first service, I kind of interviewed and we got to hear a little bit of uh, Mary Jane Savage's story. Mary Jane is Mark Savage's mom. She's 84 years old and uh, longs to follow Jesus in these latter years of her life. And so I interviewed her, and if our technology is straight, I'm going to let you watch that interview so that you can get to know Mary Jane a little bit better and uh, be encouraged in your own pursuit of Christ. So, guys, if you can, go ahead and roll that, that video for us. Well, good morning. So glad that you could sit with me this morning and we could talk a little bit again. So... Um, you were born in 1933, is that correct? And somewhere along the way, you met a guy and fell in love with him and married him. That was Tom. And uh, why don't you tell the congregation real briefly how the two of you met, really? This, this is a great story that's normally not told in church. It's a wonderful story. I don't know if I'm telling the right story. Uh, I was going home on a train. Is that the one? Oh, that's the one. Okay. And uh, I was walking through the uh, down the aisle of a, a car where you, all the men have their newspapers folded correctly, you know, somehow so they can open them and read all the things. And all of a sudden, I, I saw some a friend of my sister and a brother-in-law's, and I said, oh, hi, Ralph. And he said, Mary Jane. And he went home and told his wife, I found the girl for Tom. And I didn't know this. And uh, so we were supposed to have a blind date, but we started dating before they got around to the blind date. And that's, <laughs> that's how I met him. And how many children did you have together? Two. But I have two stepchildren, too. So I consider them mine, too. And one of them is one of the elders of our church, Mark. I'm very proud of him. Really? So, so what we'd like to know is, uh, one of the things I'm curious, what was Mark like as a child? That's a great question. What an opportunity for a mother. Uh, he was a great boy. He was very happy. He was always doing something. In high school, when they wanted to know where the party was, they'd call me up and say, Mrs. Savage, where's Mark? And as soon as they found out that they didn't talk to me, they just hung up and went and found Mark. But he was, he was always busy. He was always doing something. And he always had a gang of people with him. That sounds like Mark. That sounds like Mark. Um, so you have now um, how many grandchildren? My goodness, I have seven grandchildren. And, oh, you're going to ask me, aren't you? And I have five great-grandchildren. Now, you grew up, um, you probably remember the World War II era, and so your childhood's probably very different than what your grandchildren, and even your great-grandchildren are growing up in now. When you think about what's different between what you grew up as a child and what they grew up in, what are some of the things that just seem to be so, so different to you? Well, the, the world of, of the technical world, they know so much more than they can do so much more. And uh, as far as, hmm, what can I say? 
What do you want in these to talk about? Well, I think that's probably a big thing. No iPhones back in the day, right? Sure, outside of technology, are you mindful of anything that was very different for you as a child than what your grandchildren and great-grandchildren are facing? Well, my grandchildren, my, my mother was brought up very strictly and uh, in the Presbyterian Church. And uh, the the, my grandchildren are being brought up in the Baptist Church, but also the ones who aren't going to church, are they're looser than the... I don't know how to describe it. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned uh, growing up in the church. What when I know you were uh, baptized as a, a young woman, and evidently God was working in your heart at some time to bring you to that point where you, you expressed your faith in Christ through baptism. What do you remember about what God was? doing and what led you to the point where you were willing to follow Christ in baptism like that? Yes, um, I, I was determined that I was going to be baptized. My parents had never been had us baptized because they said we had to pick our own religion and then they would baptize us, but they didn't. And um, I was, I offered to, uh, I offered to teach Sunday school, but I, at the same time I was taking confirmation classes. And I don't know what it was. It was just something that I, I felt it was important, but I didn't know how to go about it. So I went to the church, and they said, well, a good way is to teach Sunday school. You know, they always need Sunday school teachers. I know that. Yeah. Now, you've been at North Wake for a handful of years now. Um, at, at this stage in your life, what are the things that are really encouraging you in your faith as you seek to follow Christ and to know him better? Well, I, I don't know what it is. It's just something that, that's pounding that, that I want to know, and I want to be part of the people who have been baptized because I think it's important and and I'm just, I'm just a person. I'm just, I don't have anything exciting to tell you. <laughs> no, our, our conversation first started around whether or not you should be baptized. And we've, we discussed, and you had already been baptized as a believer when you were young. And so we ended up having a conversation and thinking maybe it would be good for you to be able just to to share your story of your life and testify to your faith in Christ in front of the church. And you bravely said, yes, you would do that. What, what, um, what's causing you at this point in your life to want to know God more and follow him? I don't know what makes me want to know him more, but I, the, the people that I've met here at the church are there's a there's a calmness or a, a kindness about them, the cheerfulness and accepting things, and I want to be like that. Now, I'm I'm old, and I have to start thinking about what I'm what's coming up. 
Now, um, since you've been baptized, we won't be baptizing you today, but we want people to hear your story a little bit. But I'd like to ask you the same questions, if I could, that we would ask someone who's going to be baptized so that you just have a chance to publicly confess your faith in Christ here with your church family. Um, so we ask two questions. And the first one is, would go like this. Uh, Mary Jane Savage, have you placed your faith in Jesus as your Savior? Yes, I have. And do you want to follow him all of your remaining days as your Lord? Yes, I certainly do. Beautiful. Thank you very much for sharing with us, church. Let's bow and have prayer for her. Um, as we continue in our worship today, we'd like to just have the church pray for you. Thanks so much for sharing your story with us. Let's pray. Lord, it's, it's encouraging to us to see someone go before us in this way and say they trust you and they want to follow you all of their days. And so we pray that in your kindness you would grant Mary Jane that privilege that she might know you more and more that she might follow you more faithfully um, these latter days than she has all of her days. And thank you for your faithfulness to her from when she was young until this day. And we trust uh, that you will always be her good and loving father now and forever. We pray your blessing upon her and upon her family. And we ask this in Christ's great name. Amen. Thank you very much. Well, I hope that's an encouragement to you to watch someone at that stage of life who wants more than anything um, to follow Christ as her Lord. I spent time talking with her uh, last fall. She'd initially requested to be baptized, and as we talked, we found out that when she was a young woman, she was a believer in Christ, had already been baptized, and so she said she would like to have a conversation in front of the church where she could acknowledge and confess her faith. And so if you see her, she's usually in the first service right over here in her wheelchair with her family. She's a remarkable conversationalist, a delightful lady, and it would be a great encouragement to her and to you if you have a chance to talk to her. But I, I hope that's a bit of an encouragement to you to get to hear her perspective on all these kinds of things. Well, what we want to do uh, today with the remainder of our time is look and consider what our elders have set as our annual priority. Every fall, our elders go away for a retreat, and a big part of what we do is um, kind of uh, discuss and assess where the church is and what God's been doing and prayerfully try to discern what it is that God is longing to do in us. And we set an overarching spiritual priority that we want to encourage the whole church, everyone who calls Northwake home, to grow in this area. And so this year, our priority is, is capsulized with this saying, bought. The idea that we belong to Christ. And more fully, they articulated it this way, that we want to be captivated by the truth that we belong to Christ, that we are his people. And... We want to do that in a way, and these are the markers we're looking for to increase in our lives this year, that we would be in awe of this privilege, that the idea that we get to be God's people would really be a joy to us, and there'd be a whole lot more get-to around the church than got-to. Um, also, that we would respond in willing obedience 
since we have been purchased by Christ and belong to him, that our obedience would increase this year, and we would invite others to join us in that, that we'd be that excited about it, that we would talk with our friends and family and coworkers about, about the beauty of knowing Christ and entering into a relationship with him. As we do that, we're going to be studying um, an Old Testament book for the first half of the year, the book of Joshua. That will begin next week. And then the latter part of the year, we'll jump back into the New Testament and study the brief letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and hopefully we'll even get to Jude as the years end. But there's another powerful connection to this theme that the elders have presented to us that we're going to be participating in this year that I want us to, to kind of frame to think about today, and that is the celebration of the Lord's table. Um, that that has a really beautiful way of communicating to us what it means that we have been bought by Christ and belong to him. And so um, that's where I want to turn our focus now because we're going to begin our year together at the close of our service by the celebration of this table together. And I want to kind of help us think about how I want us to think about that today and throughout the year. So if you would, let's, let's pray together and then we'll open up the scriptures and think about it together. So bow with me, please. Lord, be kind to us now and use your word to help us see this wondrous privilege that we have to be your people, having been purchased by the blood of your own son. So help us now, God, by your spirit and your word, we pray. Amen. All right, well, when we come to the table this year, I want us to think particularly about something that we don't usually think about when we come to the Lord's table. I'd like you to think about slavery not the usual way that we think about the Lord's table. In particular, I'd like us to think about two different kinds of slavery that relate to the celebration of the Lord's table. The first of those two that I want us to keep in mind as we approach the table is found in one of Paul's letters um, to a man named Titus. And this is what Paul writes to him. He says, We ourselves were once foolish, Before we knew Christ, he is saying, we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves. Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. We we were slaves, slaves to sin. That's what he says explicitly in, in Romans 6. He says in verse 19, Paul does, Just as you, were, as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. And the New Testament describes life apart from Christ over and over again as slavery to sin and to sin's desires. It kind of takes a shape like this in our lives. Um, in 1999, there was a 25-year-old young man named Christopher Miller, and he was arrested after he forced employees into the back room of the Stride Right shoe store on Hooper Avenue in Toms River, New Jersey. He served a 15-year sentence, and on Friday, March 21, 2014, he was released from Southwood State Prison in New Jersey. The very next day, his first day of freedom, Miller, who is now 40 years old, took a bus from Atlantic City to Tom's River and went to that same shoe store. Employees tell police that he entered the store and demanded cash, telling two workers to go to the back room. When the employees refused, Miller became agitated, 
took the cash store register, which had $389 in it. So the first day out of prison, he went back to the same shoe store and robbed it again. He took the worker's cell phones, fled on foot. Police say he was found a few blocks away with the cash stashed in a gutter and the phones in a garbage can. Toms River Police Chief Mitchell Little speculated. He said, maybe prison life is the only life he knows. And the only thing he could think of was going back to the same store and doing the same crime again, getting caught and going back where he was taken care of and told what to do and getting meals and shelter and everything, everything else. And I tell you that story because I think that's what it's like to be a slave to sin. You keep going back to familiar places that you wish you could be free of, and you go back again and again and again. It's, it's kind of like robbing the same store over and over and over again. Another way to think about it, we say that we are slaves to sin. If we say that, then we are saying, by the same, by the same expression, that sin was our master. If we are slaves to sin, sin is our master, and it was a terrible one. Listen to how it's described by Paul again in Romans chapter 6. He says, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. The fruit of sin, the wages of sin, is death. Sin was a master that led us to death. And Paul writes here, it's opposed to eternal life. So sin is leading us away from life with God and all that he would offer us. And let's be clear, this was everyone's condition. Sin was all of our master. Behind these verses is the assumption that the whole world lies in bondage to sin. It's true of us all. Everyone. That's why the prophet Isaiah would write things um, like this. He would say, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Because we have all fallen prey to sin's mastery. Um, there's an author named Kathleen Norris. And she wrote in her book, uh, one of her books, this. She says, I have become like the child I once knew who emerged one morning from a noisy, chaotic Sunday school classroom to inform the adults who had heard the commotion and had come to investigate. We're being bad, the child said, and we don't know how to stop. Okay? That's, that's, what, that's what being slave, enslaved to sin is like. And that's why the Bible speaks of it as slavery. Bondage to a terrible master who leads us unstoppably away from life and God towards death. That's what it means to be enslaved to sin. And that was all our condition. But then for those of us who follow Christ, something amazing happened. And this is what we celebrate when we come to the table. We were bought and we were set free from sin's mastery. By his own blood, which we celebrate with the cup, Jesus has bought us and ransomed us and set us free from our slavery to sin. Peter wrote about it this way. He said, knowing that you were ransomed 
from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. By his own blood, Jesus ransomed us from the feudal ways that we were with, that we inherited from our forefathers before we knew Christ. Matt Woodley uh, describes a really neat story this way. He says, My friend Steve warned me that he didn't believe in forgiveness. God could never forgive me, he said. Okay, maybe he could forgive 70% of my sins, but not all of them. And Matt writes, when I, when I tried to explain that when we trust Jesus, he forgives 100% of our sin, Steve interrupted, yeah, fine, but you don't know all the stuff that I've done. And then he told Matt this fo- the following story. He says, 19 years ago, this guy stole my wife away from me. They got married and moved to Florida while my life unraveled. And after I was arrested for assaulting a police officer, this guy smirked through the entire court hearing. And when I was convicted, he flipped me the finger. I've hated him for 19 years. He's coming up here next week. I have a 32 caliber pistol strapped around my ankle. And when I see him, I will kill him. And then he chillingly concluded, I've thought all about it. I'm 63 years old. I'll get a life sentence, but I'll also get free medical and dental and a warm bed and three meals a day. All of this bitterness and resentment feels so right, but forgiveness seems weird. Matt says, after Steve told me this story, I paused for a long time before I finally stammered, well, I guess it doesn't matter if you go to jail because you're already in jail. The guy who stole your wife and smirked at your hearing isn't in jail you are. That guy is free, but you're a prisoner of your own hate, and you're slowly killing yourself. And unless you forgive, you'll remain trapped for the rest of your life. He says, a week later, Steve called me, and this is what he said. He said, you know, I get your point. I put the gun away. I don't want to spend the rest of my life in jail or enslaved to my own hate. And then he said, will you pray for me that Jesus will release me. Will you pray for me that Jesus will release me? I think that's a good way to put it because that's what Jesus does. He frees us from our sin. Romans 6 again says, you have been set free from sin. In Revelation chapter 1, it beautifully says, to Jesus who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And this is our glad remembrance when we come to this table, right? We remember that we were once slaves to sin and destined to death apart from the Lord of life. But we were set free. We were ransomed by the sacrificial death of Jesus in our place who bought us. Now, This language of being bought, of being ransomed, it means even more than being set free. It means we're now in a new kind of slavery. Listen to a little bit more fully Romans 6 on this. Romans 6, starting verse 20. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the same time from the things of which you are now ashamed? 
for the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, to, to transformation, and its end, eternal life. Paul's very clear there. We were bought from one kind of slavery, slavery to sin, and we were made slaves to God. Okay? We are in Christ slaves of God. When we were ransomed from our first slavery, we were bought. We were acquired by a new master, none other than Jesus Christ himself. That's why we call him Lord Jesus. He's our Lord. He is our new master. He now owns us. We belong to him. In Romans chapter 14, Paul describes what that is like to have been bought by Christ. He says, now none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. We are the Lord's, he says. We belong to him. The purpose, he says, of Jesus' death and resurrection is that he might be our Lord, that he might be our master, and we would belong to him. 1 Corinthians 6 talks about it. It says very simply, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. You're not your own. You belong to someone else. Now, no one that I've read puts this idea of being a slave to God more strongly than does uh, Pastor John MacArthur. This is how he puts it. He says, when you give somebody the gospel, the good news, you are saying to them, in effect, I would like to invite you to become a slave of Jesus Christ. I would like to invite you to give up your independence, give up your freedom, submit yourself to an alien will, abandon all your rights, be owned by, controlled by the Lord. He says that's really the gospel. We're asking people to become slaves. And when we become Christians, we are welcoming a new master, and he now owns us. We belong to him, and as such, we are to obey him. Listen again to John MacArthur. He says, this idea of being God's slave really comes down to this. Do what he says and what pleases him. It's that simple. That's what a slave did. Really only two possibilities. Uh, where there was a direct command, slaves obeyed it. Where there was not a direct command, slaves found a way to do what would please their master. You obeyed him and you pleased him. And that's what Paul is teaching us when he says in that verse in 1 Corinthians 6, you're not your own, you were bought with a price, so glorify God now. Glorify God in your body. Give glory to your new master. Now we live for him. That's what those verses in Romans 14 were saying, right? None of us lives to himself. And none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We 
belong to him. And this is the best of news. This is hard for freedom-loving Americans to grasp, but this is the best of news. This is surely better than slavery to sin, and it's um, better than following our own desires and wisdom. And as folk singer Bob Dylan put it, you got to serve somebody, right? There is no totally free being in the universe except for God. I like the way John MacArthur puts it. He says, the message of the cross is this. Jesus is Lord and Master. And if you want to follow him and receive forgiveness of sin and salvation, you confess him as Lord and you become his slave. And then he says, this is really beautiful, there couldn't be any more wonderful life than the life of a slave, chosen, purchased, cared for, loved, protected, provided for, secured, rewarded by a perfect, loving master. So this this is the life you've always wanted. This is your best life now, to become a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, there's some really interesting descriptions of how the institution of slavery functioned within the nation of Israel, God's people. And there are different kinds of slaves, different kinds of slavery um, that are described there. But one of them, um, the slavery had a release point. After six or seven years, the slave would be set free. It was not a lifelong slavery. Often that was related to a debt. And you would work as an indentured servant for a period of time to work off that debt. But when it came time, then you would be set free. Slaves, many slaves in the Old Testament worked for a a shorter term and were then set free. That's what's being described in Exodus chapter 21. Um, It has to do with the release of slaves. And this is what it says. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God. And he shall bring him to the door and the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl. And he shall be his slave forever. So this is a kind of voluntary servitude. Rather than go free, because he loves his master, he would stay with him and serve him always. Now there was a chorus um, several decades ago that was written to this, lyric, to this verse and put it to lyric. Um, mercifully, I don't know the song, so I don't know the melody, so I won't sing it to you, but I'll read you the lyric. It goes like this. Pierce my ear, O Lord my God. Take me to your door this day, for I will serve no other God. Lord, I'm, I'm here to stay, for you have paid the price for me. With your blood, you ransomed me. Now I will serve you eternally. So pierce my ear, O Lord, my God. Take me to your door this day, for I will serve no other God. O Lord, I'm here to stay. It is a voluntary, lifelong servitude. The New Testament puts it this way in 1 Peter 2. It says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but, in effect, choosing to live as servants 
or slaves of God. We choose to live as slaves of God. And this, to me, is the kind of slavery we're talking about when we talk about being slaves of God. It's willing slaves. Because we love our master. And as John MacArthur put it, because there wouldn't, couldn't be any more wonderful life than the life of a slave chosen, purchased, cared for, loved, protected, provided for, secured, rewarded by a perfect master. It's a willing servanthood on our part. There's an old story. It's, uh, it's attributed to Abraham Lincoln. It's probably apocryphal, but I hope it's true. And it's, it goes like this. Lincoln went to a slave auction, and there he purchased a young slave girl. <clears throat> As she looked at the white man who was bidding on her, she figured he was another white man going to buy her and then abuse her. And when Lincoln won the bid, as he was walking away with his property, he turned to her and said, Young lady, you are free. She said, What does that mean? And he says, It means you are free. She said, Does that mean that I can say whatever I want to say? And he said, Yes, that means you can say whatever you want to say. She says, Does that mean that I can be whatever I want to be? And Lincoln said, Yes, that means you can be whatever you want to be. And she said, well, does that mean I can go wherever I want to go? And he said, yes, you can go wherever you want to go. And then the girl, with tears streaming down her face, said, then I will go with you. That's what it means to be a servant of Christ. It's a willing servanthood because we love our master, because of what he has purchased us from and freed us from. And because of the life and the care he offers us as our Lord, as our master. And so when we come to this table of remembrance, that's one of the things that we are saying. I will go with you, Lord. I will be your servant. I will follow you. And so when we come to the table, we need to be reminded of both of those slaveries as we come to the table this year. <clears throat> the one we have been ransomed from and the one we have been purchased for. But perhaps especially we need to be reminded of this second one because we live in a day when we're more likely to use Jesus than to serve him. It doesn't take very much for, at all for us to deny our master by our disobedience, which Peter says is a very serious matter. In Second Peter, he says that False prophets arose among the people, and just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So you don't want to deny your master. Things will not go well for you if you do. And yet we do, don't we? In little ways, we, we deny our master by our disobedience every time we disobey him we are denying that he is our master um, so I wonder how many of us when we are 84 years old and in a wheelchair will find our way to worship with God's people when it's 10 degrees outside or we will say no it's too cold it's too cold today to follow our Lord's command and gather with his people it's too cold to please our master we will please ourselves instead. 
How many times have we said that? It is too difficult to please our master. I will please myself instead. And Jesus says to us with a befuddled look on his face, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? So, when we come to the table this year, we want to remember that we are bought in love at the greatest of costs by by Jesus' own life's blood shed on the cross for our sins. And now, he is our master, and we are his slaves, his servants. I love the way the Hawaiian pigeon version puts it. 1 Peter 2, remember, he own you. This is a good thing for us freedom-loving Americans to remember. Remember, he own you. He bought you. This is not some made-up ritual. The God-man laid his life, spilled his blood to buy you. You belong to him. And there couldn't be any more wonderful life than the life of a slave chosen, purchased, cared for, loved, protected, provided for, secured, rewarded by a perfect master. And Jesus is that master. So we follow him. And each time this year as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I want you to come to this table mindful that you are putting your yes on this table. Whatever God will ask of you, you will do. That's what we are saying. We're saying yes to the Lord. Yes, Lord, I will do what you say. I will forgive as I have been forgiven. I will love as I have been loved. I will trust you when I am afraid. I will obey you always. Pierce my ear, O Lord my God. Take me to your door this day, for I will serve no other God. Lord, I am here to stay. Would you bow with me as we approach the table together?